When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. A quick warning before the show. This story includes some strong language and graphic descriptions that may be upsetting to hear, so please take care while listening. Anya is 36 years old. She lives in the Fort Lauderdale area. Um, Gosh, right off the bat, it's like so clear. Anya is all about family. Um, She's really close with her mom and her sister, and she has this niece that she adores, and... She wants a baby so badly. I don't think I've ever met anybody who wants a baby as much as Anya does. That's Caroline Kitchener. She covers abortion for The Post. She says that Anya Cook and her husband, Derek, started trying to get pregnant in 2020. And one day, Derek woke up from a nap with a clear image of their future. He had a dream while he was taking this nap that they had a little girl. And he woke up and he just said, Anya... Go take a test. And I'm expecting for it to say not pregnant. And the fact fact that it said pregnant, I freaked out. Were you, what, what were you feeling in that moment? That was the, I think that was one of the top five moments of happiness I have ever had in my entire life. And Derek took out his phone and he took a video of Anya. I just came in the bathroom and I took one and it's... it's uh, just watching those pink lines appear on the pregnancy test. And here it is. Here is the, the result. I'm going to send another video. Oh my God. Oh my God, I'm having a baby. We're having a baby. And he said to me that he has watched that video a hundred times because he just loves seeing his wife so happy. See, we don't talk about stuff like that because it gets gets pretty emotional. Anya miscarried and lost the pregnancy. It was the first of many miscarriages. Despite their losses, the couple was determined and explored other ways to get pregnant. Anya and Derek decided to try IVF last spring. And you know, by the fall, she's pregnant, and she's farther along than she's ever been before, and she's feeling really good. For the first time, she's allowing herself to do things like start a baby registry or, you know, go shopping and pick out maternity swimsuits and little baby clothes. She hung a little pink sweater in her closet. She's really allowing herself to feel true hope for the first time in a long time. We went to a, this, it's a mall that we've never been to in Miami. And it was such a beautiful place to walk around when you're pregnant because you could see my belly. And women, you could see when I walk in the store and they were like, oh, how are you? You know, what can I help you with? Are you having a boy or a girl? And I'm like, I'm having a little girl. And I've never had that. 
to be in public like that. I felt I felt finally that I belonged. I felt no longer damaged. I felt like my body was no longer broken and, and I wasn't a piece of womb. I, my, I didn't have a piece of womb. Like my womb is working. And then right around 16 weeks of pregnancy, Anya was walking with Derek out of a TGI Fridays. It was around 10 o'clock and she feels this kind of rush of warm water on her legs. And she turns around and she's like, what, did somebody just douse me with a glass of water? What is happening? And she looks down and she realizes that her water has broken months before her due date. And she knows in that moment that her daughter is not going to make it. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Libby Casey. It's Tuesday, April 18th. Today, we bring you a story from Florida, where Anya lives. The state enacted a 15-week abortion ban in the aftermath of the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Last week, the Florida legislature passed an even stricter law that bans abortions after six weeks. State lawmakers have said the law clearly outlines exceptions, like if there's a fatal fetal anomaly or the mother's life is in danger. But those exceptions can feel vague and confusing. And in this gray area, doctors and hospitals are often afraid to intervene, even if a pregnant person is in danger, because they fear lawsuits and prosecutions. Caroline spoke with my colleague, Alahe Azadi, about how Florida's anti-abortion law is playing out in hospital rooms. Caroline, right now, if we could just pause here with learning about Anya's specific story, and if you can talk me through what usually happens, medically speaking— when a woman's water breaks at 16 weeks? Like, what is the typical prescribed care that a person would receive? So this condition is called PPROM. That's a preterm premature rupture of the membranes. What happens is that your water breaks early, um, before the fetus is viable. Um, That means that your fetus is in an amniotic sac with no fluid. Now, a fetus needs amniotic fluid to survive. So the chances, especially at at 16 weeks, which is extremely early, that's where Anya was, the chances of that fetus making it to term are slim to none, like really, really, really unlikely. And so for that reason, The standard of care typically is to offer to either induce these pregnancies right then and there when a woman's water breaks and she presents at the hospital, or to perform an abortion, um, to offer to do one of those things. And and many women choose to take that option because PPROM pregnancies can put a mother's life at risk. You are at a very high risk for sepsis and hemorrhage in that situation. So what happened with her after she discovers that her water breaks? So as soon as Anya's water breaks, she and her husband, Derek, rush to the emergency room. They know something is very seriously wrong. 
Um, you know, she describes waiting in the waiting room for an hour, her amniotic fluid just like dripping onto the floor. Oh, gosh. And then, I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. And she goes in, she speaks with the doctor, and she, he explains what's happening, explains that she has P-prom, and he says that, you know, I, unfortunately, you know, I, I can't really do anything for you. I can't induce you, and I can't keep you in the hospital. And she presses him. That's when he was like, he's like, at this point, I'm like, let me guess, Roe v. Wade? And he's like, Yeah. And according to the medical records, which we reviewed, the doctor said to come back immediately if it got worse. Now, I do think it's important to say here that I wasn't able to speak with the doctor, um, but I did, you know, I spoke with Anya and Derek, who both recounted these events, and then I had access to her medical records. So I was able to review them there. So what what happens next? Does she just go home? Yeah, she goes home, but um, before she leaves, the nurse gives her some antibiotics that the nurse explains will help um, mitigate the chance of infection. And then, you know, as Anya described it to me, the nurse offered to pray for her. And then she walks out the door and goes home with her husband. Can you just unpack a little bit for me the progression of PPROM? Is it that if you're diagnosed with this, your fetus is no longer viable? Or is it, you know, at what point does a person develop life-threatening outcomes? Is it like, you don't have it now, but you will eventually if we don't do anything? That is exactly why this is so complicated. I think a helpful reference point is an ectopic pregnancy, actually. That's hmm. something that I think a lot of, like, more people have heard of that. Um, and that is where a fertilized egg implants outside of the uterus. And that presents an immediate danger to the woman's life. There's no doubt you got to do something about that. And also, there's no doubt that that fetus is not going to make it because it cannot make it to term outside of the uterus. So that is a clear-cut case. My impression is that the vast majority of doctors and hospitals are in agreement that qualifies under the medical exceptions. Now, PPROM is a much harder case for a couple of reasons. One, because you know, th these situations do not always present complications. Sometimes they deliver. Now, in the vast majority of cases, that baby is not going to make it. But the woman, the, you know, the, the mother is fine. Now, the second reason that this is more complicated than other medical emergencies like an ectopic pregnancy is that there are, m like, miracle cases where the baby can make it. So... These situations are just not so cut and dry. So then what happens with Anya? She's sent home from the hospital. She's told we can't do anything really for you now. Is she sent home with any guidance? And what does she end up doing while she's at home? So she is told that she should go home and expect to deliver in the next couple of days. Um Wait, from home? Like, they send her home and say, just expect this to happen? They send her home, and they say, return immediately if symptoms worsen. So she goes online. She spends hours on this Facebook group, and, and she posts this the night after she gets back from the hospital. She writes, I feel so broken. My water broke last night at 15 weeks and five days. My baby girl still has her heartbeat, and the OB is saying, I will deliver her within a few days. I can't believe this is happening. 
PPROM pregnancy, it can be hours, it can be days, it can be weeks. And so doctors that I spoke to in a lot of different states and a lot of different hospital systems said this is fairly typical. Um, They just don't have the hospital space to keep people for an indefinite amount of time. Anya doesn't know how long this is going to be, and so she decides that she's going to try to sort of live her life as normal, and she goes to her hair appointment the next morning. This is the place that she goes, you know, every couple of weeks to get her hair done, same hairdresser for a really long time. Um, She sits there in the chair for two or three hours getting her hair curled, and then she described it to me like she just got this feeling. She said she felt like her grandmother was speaking to her in this really calm voice, just saying, Anya, you need to go to the bathroom. And so she didn't say anything to the hairdresser. She she just said, you know what, I'm going to go to the bathroom now. And she got in there, sat on the toilet, and... I literally just put my hands on my thighs like this, and I was just like... And I pushed... She closes her eyes and she takes a deep breath and she pushes out the fetus and, you know, she she gives birth to this stillborn baby that she planned to call Bunny right there in the toilet. And she says right away she starts bleeding and she's just absolutely freaking out. She picks up her phone, her hands are shaking and she calls her husband Derek and she says, baby, just please come to the bathroom. Come to the bathroom right now. Derek comes in and they're just completely panicked. They don't know what to do. She says she feels like it's still in her, and she has the umbilical cord dangling out of her. And so Derek pulls on the umbilical cord oh because they don't know what yeah. to do. And you're not in a hospital. You're not in a hospital. Bathroom of a hair salon. And Derek, you know, he says that his mind in that moment is going to, like, medical shows that he's seen before. And, you know, he he's like, I think I remember them using scissors to cut this cord, but I don't have scissors, so I'm just going to pull it. And she keeps bleeding, and it's just awful. And so finally, somebody calls 911, and the paramedics do come. They come into the hair salon with a stretcher, and they rush Anya, bleeding profusely, to the emergency room. So what happens when they arrive? Like, is she okay at that point? They start doing a DNC, a dilation and cutterage. Okay. Um, that's a procedure to to clear out the uterus. Um, that's a typical for, you know, after you have a miscarriage. But then the doctor is in there during the DNC, and the bleeding just gets even worse. And it's clear that something has gone really wrong. And so at that point, the doctor steps out to talk with the husband and he says, you know, I think we need to do a hysterectomy. Um, That's the only thing that, you know, that is the surest way to save your wife's life. And Removing her uterus. Removing her uterus, exactly. And Derek says, you don't understand how much my wife wants a baby. Like, that will absolutely devastate her. Please try to do anything that you can to save my wife and her uterus. And so the doctor says that he's going to try. The doctor goes back in and he 
does a surgery called a uterine artery embolization. And the idea is that you are trying to restrict the blood flow to the uterus to get a hold of the bleeding. And once he goes back in, Derek, Anya's husband, is left in the waiting room. He has a Bible. And he told this to me. He said, um, I just got down on my knees and I went into a trance. I held the Bible and I cried and I spoke out loud prayers that I don't even know what I said, but I was pleading with God, pleading to save my wife. When I prayed, you know, I started crying and praying and crying and praying. And my body just went into a, like a trance where I couldn't get out, just pray until I get my answers. And what happened with with Anya? She was sedated for over 12 hours. She woke up and they told her she did still have her uterus, but you know, eventually they informed her that the procedure that they had to do, the uterine artery embolization, that could affect her future fertility. When you restrict the blood flow to the uterus in that way, that can make it really hard to carry a healthy pregnancy to term. Caroline, I mean, this is such an awful story. I think we just have to step back and acknowledge, like, this couple, they really want a baby. You know, it's awful for people in that situation to go through a miscarriage. And I wonder, with what happened with Anya, how common is that? Like, how common is the story of what happened with her, of having P-Prom and then not being able to receive the care that one would normally receive if there wasn't an abortion ban? How often is that happening, and how common is that experience? It's really hard to say how common. We know that pre-viable pre-prom happens in less than 1% of pregnancies, but you know, I, I, I interviewed over 10 OBGYNs practicing in anti-abortion states for this story, and they all said this is, you know, if not the most widespread condition that's affected by abortion bans, one of the most. Um, you know, they, they'd almost all seen a couple of these cases since June where they were not able to offer the option that they used to be able to offer. We don't have numbers. We can't say exactly how often this is happening. It is common enough that, you know, almost to the day exactly as this was happening to Anya, one of her closest friends, Shanae Smith-Cunningham, also experienced pre-viable P-Prom also in the state of Florida and was also impacted by these laws. What, what happened with Shanae? What was her situation? Shanae was three weeks farther along than Anya was. Both Anya and Shanae are from Jamaica. And, and Shanae was in Jamaica visiting her mom for a few weeks when her water broke. And so she goes to the hospital, just like Anya did the night before, literally the night before. She goes to the hospital. They tell her exactly the same. You're experiencing P-Prom. But then they say something different. They say, you know, we want to induce you as soon as possible. Because she's in Jamaica. Yeah, she's in Jamaica where, where you allowed. can still do that. Mm-hmm. Shanae calls her husband in Florida. She says, you know, I'm... I'm really scared. They want me to do this, you know, big surgery here. What should I do? And they both agree that she should get on a plane and go back to the United States because they both feel that she would get better medical care 
in America at her, you know, at, at the hospital in their area um, with her regular OBGYN. And of course, at that point, Shanae has no idea that there is this new abortion law that would prevent that from happening. And so what happened with Shanae, did, did her situation turn out as horrific as, as her friend Anya's? Shanae was okay because she she talked to Anya after Anya, you know, woke up and, you know, had a few days in the hospital and Anya was able to tell her what had happened. And she said, I don't want the same thing that to happen to you. You need to keep going back to the hospital. And so Shanae went to the hospital a total of four times. She just kept going back and kept going back. And she just told herself, I am going to deliver at this hospital. And finally, the fourth time, she was dilated enough that they agreed to keep her. And she was able to deliver her baby um, in the hospital. Her baby, you know, didn't make it. It was it was too early on. But she was safe. You know, something that really struck me about the story from day one was the power of the connection between these two women. I mean, they... They went through their whole pregnancies together. You know, Anya had all of Shanae's doctor's appointments in her calendar so that she could remember to check in. And she kept checking in and kept checking in. And when this happened, they were talking to each other and they were trying to help each other. And in the end, that help, you know, potentially saved Shanae from going through the same thing that Anya did. After the break, Alahe and Caroline break down the state law that led to this situation and what legislators and doctors have to say about it. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Caroline, I want to understand more about how we got to this moment in Florida and could it change at all? So Florida's 15-week abortion ban took effect last summer, and there are a couple of exceptions. You know, there's a medical exception for when there is a risk to the pregnant woman's life. Um, It's also allowed to you know, and this is a quotation, um, to avert a serious risk of substantial and irreversible physical impairment of a major bodily function. I mean, that's a mouthful. It's what does really that mean? It's a mouthful. It's very unclear what it means. Um, and that's what the doctors are saying, that it's really confusing. So like a lot of other states, the language in Florida's medical exception is... Very vague. Um, Those exceptions leave a lot to be interpreted. You know, at what point, like how risky do things need to be to qualify as knowing that there is a serious risk or knowing that it's necessary to save the pregnant mother's life? And 
you know, what, what's tricky about PPROM is that you come in, your water breaks, and you might not be able to see any other exacerbating risk factors. You, in fact, you probably can't. You just see that the woman's water has broken, which you know puts her at higher risk for these things, but there's no kind of other reveals. It was clear reporting the story that, you know, the multiple hospital systems that we looked at in the Fort Lauderdale area where these women had gone to, both Anya and Shanae, they did have policies in place for the 15-week abortion ban. Um, and, you know, they they had the language of the law in their policy. And doctors were made aware that things had changed after this took effect. But then right there in the room, it really does come down to the individual doctor. And that can be really scary because, you know, doctors are people with families and livelihoods and they don't want to get sued. They don't want to go to jail, obviously. So in that moment, it is a really tough decision, I think, for them to make. But, you know, by and large, all of the doctors that I talked to for this story said, you know, PPROM with these exceptions, it doesn't qualify. Mm, Like the way it's worded in the law. Well, I mean, to me, this also maybe is putting in stark relief that when you talk about a legal framework, legal frameworks can be very specific, very black and white. And when it comes to human bodies, that's just not how human bodies work. And doctors, for as much as they can rely on scientific evidence and a body of research, and these are the predicted outcomes. They also don't have a crystal ball. It can never say with 100% certainty almost anything, right? Right, right. And so I think, is this why, like a PPROM, it's like, okay, if someone comes to me, I'm a doctor, and I can say with great confidence, eventually this will be life-threatening if we don't intervene right now. Right now, it's not life-threatening. Right, and you can't even necessarily say that because, Mm. you know, it's not always life-threatening and there's no kind of particular way, like you said, to have a crystal ball to know how this is going to play out for each individual patient, which puts doctors in a really hard place. Caroline, hearing what happened to these women and in large part, what happened to Anya, like she wasn't able to be in a hospital because of this ban, at least according to, you know, what she was told in the hospital. What do lawmakers have to say about that and for themselves? And I mean, here's a woman who really wants a baby. This is not who I assume they are trying to target with this law. This is not someone who wants to actively seek to terminate her pregnancy. She wants nothing more than to carry her pregnancy to term. This is not a situation she wants to be in. And she ends up in a life-threatening situation. Did did you talk to any lawmakers about her case? I did. I I talked to one of the sponsors of the 15-week ban that is in effect right now. And she said basically that this situation should fall under the medical exception. And she actually told me that she felt that doctors were willfully misinterpreting the language Hmm. um, for political reasons. How so? You know, she she said she felt that it was very clear that in a situation like this, they should be able to perform an abortion. She told me that um, essentially that doctors, you know, were, um, you know, unnecessarily putting patients at risk because they wanted to make a political point. The political point being that we are going to go so extreme on this to show you that we think this law is wrong. The political point being, you know, look what these abortion bans do. 
I see. Um, I will say that I immediately called up the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists when she said that to me to get some context and response. And they said, that's ridiculous and upsetting and insulting to say that, you know, doctors would potentially put their patients at risk to make a political point. And they reiterated that doctors are scared. And you know, they are fearful of what could happen to them and to their families if they were to perform an abortion under these circumstances. To think about this co-sponsor in Florida, who the co-sponsor of this abortion ban, if she herself is saying this should have been covered by the exemption and the fact it wasn't, is she open to refining the law or, you know, addressing some of these concerns? Because it doesn't sound like she thinks that Anya should have been turned away at the hospital, that she should have received that kind of care. So just last just last week on Thursday, Florida lawmakers passed a much stricter ban outlawing abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, which is before many people even know that they're pregnant. That ban passed with a few exceptions, including rape and incest. Like the 15-week ban, there is an exception for the life of the mother. So what happened on the floor when they were debating the six-week abortion ban, the Democrats came up, they they told the story of Anya and Shanae, and they proposed an explicit amendment for PROM because they said, you know, that's all well and good. You can say that this is covered, but we know from these stories that in practice it is not. The doctors do not feel like they can provide an abortion in these situations. So let's make it explicit. Let's call out PREPROM and say that in any case like this, a doctor can perform an abortion. The following amendment with title amendment, barcode 708245, between lines 225 and 226, insert an amendment. This language is absolutely necessary because if you know about Anya and Shanae who live in Broward County, you know that Anya had a much wanted pregnancy where she went for infertility, had lost numerous babies before. Her water burst at 15 weeks. The hospital decided to send her home, and she delivered the fetus in a toilet alone. She lost so much blood that it was half the blood in her body, according to medical records. And so, you know, while this debate was going on, I was actually texting with Anya, who had watched a lot of the debate on the House floor. She was so excited that Democratic lawmakers had decided to bring a PROM amendment, you know, in large part based on what happened to her. She doesn't want any other woman in Florida to go through what she had to go through. And so, you know, while, while they're debating this, she's texting me a bunch of prayer emojis and fingers crossed emojis. And then they vote on the amendment and not a single Republican votes for it even after hearing her story. The six-week abortion ban passed without any sort of explicit exception for PROM. It will take effect 30 days after the state Supreme Court rules on the constitutionality of the current 15-week ban. That decision is currently pending. Um, it is expected in the next couple of months. And what do the hospitals have to say about what happened with Anya and Shanae? So... 
Between the two of them, Anya and Shanae were turned away from three different hospitals, and we reached out to all of them, and, you know, they all, you know, were very clear on their policies, that their policies follow the language of the law. Um, The one particular hospital where Anya was turned away from, they, you know, were very staunchly making the case that she was not at risk in this situation, um, you know, countering the other physicians that we talked to for this story. How are Anya and Shanae doing now after everything they've gone through? I mean, I think that this was just an incredibly mentally traumatizing experience for both of them, particularly for Anya. I mean, just the memory of what happened in the hair salon and afterwards at the hospital is just with her every day, I think. Um, But these are two women who, you know, neither of them has children yet, and they both desperately want children. So they are going to keep trying and they know that, you know, that, that, that when they try again, there is going to be a stricter abortion law in place. And they're terrified that this could happen again, but they feel like they don't have a choice. And they're going to keep going. For Anya, the procedure that she had to have, the uterine artery embolization, that really could affect her chances of having a healthy baby in the future. Um, So that weighs on her, you know. She knows that this experience really, you know, could have impacts that will shape the rest of her life. And in reflecting on this experience, Anya told me, you know, she really couldn't believe that it had happened this way. This should not happen. I didn't go there wanting an abortion. I want my baby. I want my baby. I wanted my baby. I want to live I don't want to die trying to have a baby. It shouldn't be like that. And these doctors shouldn't, they should know what to do. There should be some kind of protocol. If the government is trying to tell you that they can't, they're not going to allow you to terminate a baby that you know is about to die, they need to give you some other option. You know, she has people in her life that are really pushing her to consider adoption or surrogacy, but she wants that biological child so badly. And she told me she's going to keep trying until someone tells her, absolutely no, you can't. Well, thank you, Caroline, so much for bringing these stories to us. And thank you to Anya and Shanae for sharing that their stories with us, too. Thank you, Eli. Caroline Kitchener covers abortion for The Post. She spoke with my colleague, Alahe Azadi. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ariel Plotnick and edited by Maggie Penman and Lucy Perkins. It was mixed by Sean Carter. I also want to let you know that Post Reports is nominated in several categories in the Webbies, including for its coverage of abortion. You can check out our show notes for a link on how to vote. I'm Libby Casey. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.